This Week in Startups, The Next Unicorns is brought to you by LinkedIn. You need LinkedIn jobs to find the right people for your business. Post a job today at linkedin.com slash unicorn and get $50 off your first job post. Embroker. The Embroker Startup Insurance Program helps startups secure the most important lines of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Get an instant quote and $5,000 of AWS credit at Embroker.com slash twist. While you're there, get 10% off by using offer code TWIST10. And NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Get NetSuite's free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, when you go to netsuite.com slash twist. Hey, everybody. Welcome to This Week in Startups. I'm your host, Jason Calacanis. There are few life events that are more considered than going to college or buying a car. And those life decisions that are more important than where you go to school and what car you buy are what home you buy. And do you have a kid? And do you get married? These are the considered purchases in your life. And as such, they are one of the great places to build a startup. If everybody's got to make a decision, they got to do a bunch of research. And in Web 1.0, we saw a ton of companies around these uh, specific categories. But um, my guest today, Shanlin Ma, I did good? I got it? Good work. Okay, good work. Shanlin Ma is the CEO and co-founder of Zola, Z-O-L-A. Yes. Uh, and is it Zola.com? Yes. What does Zola mean? It means love in the Zulu language. Got it. Zola means love. Yes. And Zola is a wedding registry plus more. Plus much more. Got it. Okay, so tell me, uh, why did you build it? When did you build it? And of course, this is part of our next unicorn, our Sunicorn series. Um, so things have been going incredibly well. You raised $100 million, uh, and you've been at this since when? 2013. 13. Yeah. So five years to unicorn status, pretty impressive, or six years maybe, six years. Well, not officially not a unicorn. unicorn. Sorry, six years to Sunicorn status, right? That's correct. Six years to build a pretty epic business. How many people work there? 200. Wow. Based where? Based in New York. Got it. Yeah. Uh, so 200 people, you just raised this $100 million round. So things are going well. Very well. Very well. You got to be making eh, 25, 50 million a year in revenue if you're going to raise that kind of money. I'm in the ballpark. Higher, but that's all I'm going to say. Okay, great. <laughs> See, this is, how we, this is how we do it on the podcast. We get right to the number. We'll just... It's greater, nine figures or less. So anyway, we'll say 50 to 100 million. Fantastic. Congratulations. Um, what was the original idea here? Because this was a very crowded space. Uh, the Knot, uh, I know, was a public company in New York. I covered it when I was a journalist. Uh, I thought they had it all wrapped up. But you came in and uh, built a business. So what was the idea of how you would compete in a space that I think a lot of people thought was crowded and maybe hard to grow in? Yeah, and when... We first started thinking about um, Zola even as an idea, which was 2013. That was, it was really kind of out of personal need. So that was the year all my friends got married at exactly the same time. Uh, Maybe you're a few years out from that year. I'm 48. Yeah, we all got married. <laughs> Samantha is right in that year. We're in a different phase right now. <laughs> We're in the phase where people are dropping like flies. <laughs> no. Literally, was at dinner the other night. And my wife and I seem to be the last couple standing. There's like three couples that are still together, and there's like five oh. that are splitsky in the last two years. Oh, dear. Oh, dear is right. Woof. Well, the year for me, <laughs> they're, they're going back to the year for me, 2013, that was when it was just starting, mm. uh, when there was... You know, every weekend I was going to a different friend's wedding. Mm. I was spending a lot of money buying wedding presents, buying flights to the wedding. And I was, you know, found myself every time I went to a friend's wedding registry really frustrated by that experience. And I had worked for a long time in e-commerce, building great e-commerce products. What was frustrating about it? Just old technology, web-based, not mobile? Exactly. So it was like shopping from a cold transactional checkout cart. It did not work on a mobile device. And at that time, the wedding registry space was 
only dominated by the big traditional department stores. Mm. And so you couldn't find anything you wanted all in the one registry. Mm. And um, I felt like my couples, oh, sorry, my friends who were the couples getting married deserved a lot better than what they were being offered. And having worked in tech, worked in product, I knew that something better could be built. And so my co-founder Nobu and I set out to do that. Got it. And here it is on the screen. Samantha and David are getting married on November 23rd. It's only 52 days left. And here we go. An evening in Lisbon, Venice, Tulum. How many places are you going, Sam? (laughs) My God. Venice, Paris? Wow. So you can... um, also, just give a hundy towards dinner. I guess that's like a gift card or just a hundred dollar contribution. Well, it depends how Samantha has set this up. So yeah. she, she, you know, as the bride or the couple together, can decide: do we want a gift card or do we want um, the cash to be contributed to something in particular? Uh, and look, they I see here in the design they said are most wanted. Yes. Um, so that's a nice thing. They can just defer the cost of some of these adventures. Uh, and, oh, I see you can sort it by uh, what's available in the purchase price. So I see uh, we're looking at kitchen in a $150 range or whatever. And these are all very beautiful. Do you yep. stock everything or do you um, work with every other vendor out there? Like wh- what is the inventory and who does the fulfillment? I'm curious. So the one of the things that's different about Zola's registry, which really is not available anywhere else, is that we let couples register for products from today. We have 800 brands and we work directly with those brands. Ah. So in that sense, we are the retailer. Got it. But we also offer experiences like what you saw, as well as cash funds or honeymoon funds, which is what Samantha has as well. And everyone wants a mix of these things and um, they want it in one place and they want it to be personalized in the way that you see here. And it's kind of crazy that this didn't exist before. So, Shan, what if like uh, Samantha wants like a Peloton or something and you or eight sleep and you don't have that, right? Well, the thing that we do have is an add to Zola button. So if someone like Samantha wants something that is not currently available on the Zola site, they can use that add to Zola button to pull in any products from any site and add it to their Zola registry. And then Samantha can pick, would I like to get the cash to then go and buy that myself at at the time that I feel ready? Or do I want to send my guests to that site to buy it for me? Mm. Uh, But I think the great thing about that is that it's still all in one place. But then we also have great insight into what do couples want that we Mm. don't currently have in our store that we can then go out to that brand and say, you know, why don't you, we work together to get you onto our site. How how do you make money? You get a commission on all this? Affiliate fees? Do people pay you? So it is I you know one of the things I'm actually proudest of with mm-hmm. Zola is um not just the user experience that we've created but also the business model which I think is very innovative based on a lot that we learned about e-commerce and what works well and what doesn't as it relates to e-commerce business okay. models. So I, what is it? So we have a hybrid of a marketplace business and an e-commerce business in the sense that on the Zola site, we have over 80,000 products in the Mm. store today, and yet we have virtually no inventory and we're able to capture wholesale retail margins because we are the retailer. Ah. Um, But it is... But they'll drop ship it so you don't have to maintain the inventory. Exactly. So if uh, they want to buy this kitchen set, Mm -hmm. you negotiate with the person selling the kitchen set and then you... Drop ship it to them. You get you get the wholesale to retail mm-hmm. lift. So that's what a re- it would have cost. Yes, and y- that's a big margin. That can be fifty percent, right? Well, it depends on the product and oh, the category, right. but it's the same margin that any retailer or your know, online e-commerce site would get. I, I know this is like a stupid question from an investor that you must get all the time, but I'm curious as to the answer. Did Amazon ever fancy? Because I know they did lists. I would think Amazon would have launched this like six times and shut it down five. Does Amazon have a competing product and is it any good? So they've had um, a wedding registry yeah. from way before we launched and and it's still there. And I think you know every time we launch an update to our product, we see some similar updates a, a year later. That, is that disheartening <laughs> as a founder when they just, are they brutal about it or are they like, 
incompetent about it. It's got to be scary to go up against Amazon as a commerce well, person. Well, I, I love it when other sites copy us because I'm a competitive person. So I feel like it's motivation to got stay it. ahead and to keep iterating and gotta improving. Got to keep keep ahead. Yeah. Um, but I think the thing that you know is different about weddings mm. and I think why we've grown so quickly is because weddings and registries and um, what you put together for mm. that single day is something that you really care about. How do I find the site or the registry that reflects who I am as a couple? How can I discover new brands? How can I get something that is emotional and joyful rather than just a cold kind of transaction page? It feels like Walmart or Amazon would be utilitarian to the point of not romantic, not we're starting our lives together. We want to have this beautiful new fairy yeah. tale lifestyle of you know, it's going to be beautiful and aesthetically pleasing. Like Amazon is the opposite of aesthetically pleasing. Yeah. It's aesthetically annoying. <laughs> and and I think this is why we have, have been able to capture a huge chunk of the market. Mm. It's because we create a beautiful site that couples can customize, mm. but we also develop in the case of registry, specific features you cannot find on any other site. Like we only let couples, we let couples control when and where they receive their gifts. So it turns out most couples don't actually want to receive their gifts until after they've come back from the wedding, after they've moved house. Honeymoon. And, yeah. you know, and no one else does that. Ah. The other thing we do is we have all these other wedding planning products that we've launched after our registry product, like the oh. wedding website, invitations. And these are things that are deeply connected to the Got registry, it. connected to each other. So the registry is kind of the um, the uh, foundation, but then you do invites and so, the wedding site. Is that all free? Do you use that as like the honeypot, as it were? Yeah. So our wedding planning tools are all free, including the checklist of all the things you need to do for your wedding, oh, yes. your guest list manager, and your f wedding website. Wow. And so those things- Because people charge for that, right? In the market? Wedding websites, Lots yes. of money, like yeah. 500 bucks or something. Oh, I don't, I don't know if it's that high, but yeah. there's certainly sites that charge for that. I think for uh, us, it is, um, it is something that we're happy to provide for free, and we think it makes a lot of sense sure. for Zola to do that because then, you know, we- we then raise awareness of our registry and of our other products. Hiring isn't about putting a want ad in a newspaper anymore, posting to some fugazi job board and waiting to see what knuckleheads apply. No, you need serious talent, right? You're growing your business. You need to reach the right candidates, the people who are going to fit in with your team and be A players, right? Well, where are you going to find the A players? You know where to find them. It's LinkedIn. Of course, members of LinkedIn are there to make connections. They love to go learn. Uh, and they like to grow as professionals and discover new job opportunities. Maybe they're not looking for a job, but they'll opportunistically uh, take a little peruski, maybe find something interesting, and that interesting company might be yours. Uh, in fact, a hire is made every eight seconds on LinkedIn. That's it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Somebody got hired on LinkedIn. That's how LinkedIn gets your job posts. They get right to the people who have the skills, hard and soft, to solve the problems you need in whatever role you're trying to fill. I know this because we filled a number of important positions here at our company by using LinkedIn. And I'm going to give you 50 bucks to use towards your first credit in just a moment. Here you see CMO Presh posting for our new client service manager position in our Toronto office. Uh, you know, we have this growing podcast and we need someone to maintain the client relationships and help us with growth and marketing and all that good stuff. So we write in the skills we need. We write the description. We add some additional screening questions. These are critical. Great hack. Screening question. Why do you want the job? What podcast do you listen to? You know, things that people who don't care about the job will skip. And it's all done within a couple of minutes. He sets his daily budgets and he's on his way to finding a qualified candidate. So I want you to go to linkedin.com slash unicorn, U-N-I-C-O-R-N, you know how to spell unicorn, and I'm going to give you 50 bucks, 5 a 50 for me and our friends at LinkedIn for your first job posting. That's it. Go to linkedin.com slash unicorn and get $50. LinkedIn.com slash unicorn, which is what your company will be when you fill those next two or three positions with that $50 I'm giving you right now. Go to linkedin.com slash unicorn and get that 50. All right. Let's get back to this amazing episode. There's this kind of thought out there that weddings and getting married is antiquated. 
and that millennials or maybe Gen Z are not going to do it. Is that true or not? Because this is the thesis I've heard, and I don't have any statistics to back it up, is millennials are part of this new generation that value experiences, and let's call it a lightweight lifestyle where they don't get married, they don't spend a lot of money on stuff, they don't have, I don't know, homes or cars or leases. To the extent they can not weigh themselves down, which is smart, or burden themselves, and let's face it, marriage, I don't want to say is a burden, but it is a commitment. It is a serious, it's of the It's the most serious commitment, I think, after having kids. Um, is that true or not? And what do you think going forward? Yeah, that is not true based on what we've seen in the, the numbers of people getting married every year. Okay. And actually, if we look back decades and decades, the number of people getting married each year is extremely consistent. It's 2.2 million couples getting married in the US every single year, mm. no matter what the economy is doing or the generation. And, and so I think the number of couples getting married is the same. What is different is how the millennial couple thinks about their wedding ah. and the age at which they get married. That's the big shift. Okay. So let's take the last one and then go yeah, backwards. Yeah. What age are yeah. they getting married? So the average age today of a couple getting married is between 28 to 30 across the U.S. And it used to be, whatever, 20 years ago? One, ge one generation ago, it was like 21. Really? Yeah. That makes sense. So not Gen Xers, but before Gen Xers, it was probably so uh, like boomers to Gen the Xers, parents of millennials, parents of millennials, yeah. which would be boomers yeah. to Gen Xers, I guess, um, would be twenty one. Mm -hmm. Now twenty eight to thirty mm -hmm. makes sense. People live longer, get a little life under your belt, maybe save some money. Is that an economic? Do you have any insight into why that got pushed back? Whatever it is, seven, eight, nine, ten years. Yeah. Well, I think my hypothesis is. Uh, I think the percentage of women who are working full-time has right. increased. Um, education of women has increased. And then I think just the um, the kind of social and religious norms around getting married have, right. have changed. There's not that pressure that it – this, and it really was a stigma for women, I think, right before my generation that you were the last to get married. Our generation – I was born in 1970 – we didn't actually buy into that, that somebody who got married at 30 was like, I don't know, what they, an old maid. They had a term, an old maid. Like, oh, that was the last person to get married. That was some sort of whatever, negative for a woman. <laughs> that sounds horrible. <laughs> but well, yes. that, that was how it was pitched <laughs> to us when we were growing up, that you were, there was the term, old maid, right? Like you were the last one. So you were the yes. remnant yes. inventory, as it yeah. were. Uh, I, well, oh, my goodness. <laughs> That was the perception. Wow. I, I'm not saying that's my perception, but that was what people – is that not what your generation thought? That if you were 30 or 35 getting married, something was wrong with you? <laughs> well, I'm not married and so I clearly don't think that. <laughs> but Jen, this is not an <laughs> indictment. If you've got an issue – You just called me an old maid. I get it. I didn't it. call I you it. an old maid. I was very clear in the language. I am the host of a podcast that's hated by snowflakes. <laughs> And you're a fan of the podcast. You told me before. That is true. I am just being candid here. In my generation, that was the perception. It's not anymore. Yeah. When I think the other um, perhaps perception that has changed is that couples today, on on average, live together before they get married. That's and true. I think that that was perhaps not as welcomed oh, a generation ago. Not welcomed in my no. I have a Korean wife and whose parents live in China and Korea. No, they don't watch the pod, but <laughs> crazy. So we live together. But when her parents came to town, they, I, a friend of mine, you got to edit this, Nick. This is very sensitive. Edit that part out. <laughs> Let me start over here. Edit. Just edit this a little bit, okay? I'm dead serious right now. A friend of mine who uh, had very traditional in-laws lived with his fiance. And when their in-laws came in from China, had to move their stuff out of the house and put it in the trunk of their car and move in with their friend for almost two weeks and live on a couch to just in the off chance that her parents came to the house, went to the bathroom, and then checked the closets. <laughs> See, couples today friend, have it a, so much easier. A friend of mine went through this. He's not bitter about it. <laughs> but let me tell you something. This was an very anxiety-producing for this couple. This 
charade, as it were. Yes. And yes. I told them, listen, do what you need to do. <laughs> Be respectful of the parents, the in-laws. If they're old school, it's fine. Yeah, so that's are, changed. Yes. <laughs> Mo- mostly different now. <laughs> um, and then you said ceremonies were different. Okay, so they're pushing it out a third of their lifespan, whatever, seven, ten years out. That makes yeah. total sense. Yeah. No judgments. I think it's actually smart. Get a little more established in your career. Play the field a little bit. Uh, and then get married when you're maybe, I think, are most people still getting married with the intention of having a family? Or has that been decoupled? Is there any statistics on that? Because that was the explicit reason we were told to get married. Get married, have kids. Get yeah. married, have kids. Yeah. Yeah. I think we see that um, that is also that is that order of operations is slowly changing. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think we've seen a huge shift there yet, Sorry. but I think it's certainly changing. I think a lot of traditions like, you know, it, the you have to wait for the guy to propose it has also started. We've oh, seen it really? to slowly change. You That's know, interesting. Certainly... So they actually have a discussion about it and there's not like a whole charade where you talk to the sister and the sister tells you, when are you going to propose to my sister? You've been dating her for four and a half years. Not This is my other friend went through that. <laughs> not speaking from personal experience. Or no, anything. no, it's my friend. My friend who's not me. Yeah. So that's changed. Well, I'm How sure do do that now? still happens, but I think we we it's not so rare to hear about a woman proposing to a man or a woman proposing to a woman or a man, you know, sing, same sex couples getting married and um and so I think the the wait for the guy to uh, get down on one knee before you can even start planning, uh, you know, your life together is is not as common. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Which would be the most romantic way to propose in Central Park on a sunny day, uh, at home, uh, after a, uh, at a romantic restaurant, at a romantic restaurant, or at the top of the Eiffel Tower at sunset exactly. Which would be the most romantic thing you Where could do? Where are these options coming from? I'm just curious. Which would be the most romantic in your experience as an expert from Zola.com, which does mean love, in your expert opinion? Would it be sunset at the top of the Eiffel Tower in a a fine restaurant Mm -hmm. or in Central Park? Which is the most romantic? Wait, home was one of these options. And home, yeah. Home. home. And home while Netflixing and chilling. Home. You say home, Netflix, and chill. Yes. Really? I think so. Wow. (laughs) Was that not the right answer? Wrong answer, What's the right answer? answer? That, it was a Netflix and chill moment? We both got, no, it was Christmas morning. Christmas morning, okay. They're both home moments. They're, they're Nick's Nick did it. Hold on. In you, bed. In bed. <laughs> in bed. Netflixing and chill. Oh, God. I didn't realize it was this kind of podcast. <laughs> well, we're just, no, no. When we say in bed, we just mean like cat, not saying, we're just saying you're, you're Netflixing and chilling. Got it. You're got just it. hanging. Uh-huh. But you think at home uh-huh. is the most romantic. Yes. Not at the top of the Eiffel Tower at sunset. That's also pretty good. Sorry, Jade. I screwed it up. <laughs> Apparently, I dropped the ball. I should have just put in season two of The Sopranos on DVD from when Netflix was on DVD. And I should have proposed to you. How did you propose? I proposed at the top of the Eiffel Tower at sunset. Of course. what As one does. Tom Cruise with Katie Holmes did it at the restaurant. I did it at the top floor. I don't know what people are thinking. You guys all think in bed or at home. I don't get it. Charles, are we, uh, uh, is this a generational thing? Where did you do it? I've done it twice. Uh, okay, I'm going to go ahead and put a pin in that one. Yeah. First one was at the top of the Apple Tower. Second one was at home in bed. Okay, got it. <laughs> I was at the bottom of the uh, Grand Canyon. Oh, oh that's nice that's and romantic. Nice. Wow. Yeah. Absolutely that's a nice very nice. One. Didn't work out. All right. Well, there you go, folks. Uh, Netflix and chill. All right. Listen, you need to have insurance for your startup. I do. And with me today, Matt Miller from Embroker. He's the CEO and founder. Welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me, Jason. All right. Tell me, what is the Embroker startup program? The Embroker startup program is the first fully digital insurance program for startups. So we can provide startups with all the coverage they need, less than five minutes, save them a bunch of money. 
Amazing. You just fill out a form. It's like checking out at Amazon. Like checking out at Amazon. Just that, that simple. Easy. Basically that simple. So why did you build the startup program? Why, why isn't the regular insurance programs that are available good enough? I actually had to buy insurance for my own company, the founder, and wow. it was literally so painful that I didn't do it. I actually did not buy the coverage and I decided we actually had to build something that was that was better, that was worth the, the, the type of overall software we're building. Well, why are insurance brokers so annoying? I don't think they try to be annoying. But I think they are. They they oh, can, they can be. be, and it's so confusing. Yeah, it is so Why confusing. Why is it so confusing? Why are they so annoying? I think it's confusing because the industry wants to make it confusing. They ah. they make more money the more confused you are. If you think you need this guy to help you, you don't ask the right questions. Got uh, it. But it doesn't have to be. It feels like used car salesman. It can a little bit feel like that, where you're getting sold something you don't really know if you need it. Right, and that's what I love about you. You're like the Tesla of insurance because you go to Tesla, you just sign up. And you get a Model 3. And you don't negotiate the price, and you get it instantly. That's exactly what we're trying to build, and yeah, we think it works pretty well. Yeah, I, I use it, and it's amazing. So thank you for building it, Matt. Thanks, Jason. So get an instant quote and the $5,000 in AWS credits right now by going to broker.com slash twist. And when you check out, use twist10 to get 10% off. Thanks for coming in, Matt. Thanks for having me, Jason. You worked at Yahoo as a product manager. Yes. During the 2007 to 2008 post-purchasing Flickr and Deli- Delicious yes. era. Yes. Right after that, in fact. Uh-huh. Um, and then you worked uh, with the GM at uh, Gilt Taste, I guess, which was one of the Gilt group for my friend Kevin Ryan, mm-hmm. the greatest investor in New York City. I guess right up there with Fred Wilson. I guess they would be tied. Yep. What was it like to work for... Kevin Ryan, the co-founder of DoubleClick, and of course, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. now running Alicorps. Yeah, so I think working for Kevin and learning from him during that first four years of guilt was one of the best things I could have ever done. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, inc- the amount that I learned during that experience was incredible, and I think the um, it was everything from what does it look like to to be. And, and develop product in a fast-growing business. Um, how do you think about scaling the product, the business, and the culture and the team size all simultaneously? So the, wow. um, you know, I think the business grew from zero to six hundred million in revenue within four years. Incredible, incredible. And and the what was taste? Guilt taste versus just guilt group or guilt? Well, what so uh, so the background with taste was. Towards, you know, I think three years into the life of Guilt Group, um, Kevin was was talking and thinking and brainstorming about what are the next verticals that make sense for us to launch. Because they started in fashion homes. Started in women's fashion yeah. and then expanded quickly into men's fashion, home, kids, um, and then, you know, thinking about new categories. And this was the, for people who don't know, after Groupon, there was a website called Vente Privé, I think, mm-hmm. in France. In, yep. That was flash shells. They would do. They would sell a certain amount of stuff every day. Yeah. It became a phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Took over France, mm-hmm. Paris, whatever. Um, and of course, Kevin's wife, Pascal, is French, mm-hmm. and I guess he became aware of it and did something similar in the United States. He was the first person to do it. Mm-hmm. But was flash shells was the concept? You, you exactly. buy it today and then it's over. Exactly. It, the concept is um, design a fashion brands at up to eighty percent off for a limited time only. Got it. And great idea. Well, I think from a customer perspective, that was the first time we had seen anything like that in the US in a way that was really beautiful to shop and mm. fun and fast to shop. Um, and so that drove huge demand and it drove kind of very fast demand intent and in that you had a deadline, you had to buy it, otherwise someone else would. Got it. Um, so that's what really drove the- That was an interesting device. The revenue growth so quickly. I think the challenge that- I got to observe from kind of the seat where I was in was, um, is this a business model that would one day be profitable and sustainable because of the amount of both people that required, the amount of inventory you had to buy mm. as the business, the amount of pro- creative production mm. around each flash sale that was just very high. And so ultimately, you know, my take was that seems like a very tough business to ever be um profitable in the long run and mm. and kind of informed how we thought about the Zola business model and e-commerce It businesses. was tough to be profitable. Yeah. Um, I, I'm trying to understand why it would be tough to be profitable. Is it because they had to constantly 
was it a business? This is my perception, and it's just a very immature one from the outside, obviously, you would know. But one of my perceptions was it was a business that during the Great Recession was timed perfectly because it was 2008. People were losing jobs. People were scared. The stock market lost half to two-thirds of its value, depending on which index indices. And people were bargain hunting. Mm-hmm. And so it was of the moment, 2008 to 2010, Great Recession after the financial uh, collapse, 2007, 2008. And then when things got better, the people who were providing the clothes were like, this is working against us? We shouldn't put our inventory there. Was it an inventory problem, and that of the moment problem? I think that was part of it. Yeah. I think part of it was during that time frame, the brand, the fashion brands had a lot of excess inventory, and this was a way to help um, move it. And I think the other part of it was that at that point in time, the the brands were not as um, familiar with e-commerce. And so many of them didn't have their own e-commerce sites and many of them didn't have mechanisms ah. to do their own sales online. But 10 years later, mm-hmm. Amazon starts kicking their butt and they say, we need to know how to sell. If they've got their own website, why wouldn't Barney's take to a flash sale themselves? Because they've got the email list. So I think, yeah, nowadays there's a lot of other places you can go to find a great deal. And customers still want great value, great deals. It's just there's a lot of other places you can find it. It was really instructive for me because I got pitched on Mm fab.com. Remember that? I do. There was one Kings Lane, uh, Ali Pincus, friend of mine. Um, There was Mm fab.com, Jason Goldberg. Goldberg? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. And then uh, Kevin did Von Privé. And Jason came to me. Guilt. He, guilt. I'm sorry. Came to me with fab.com. And I logged in and I was like, this is going to be a unicorn. Do you know what fab.com was before it was a flash shell site? No. It was gay Facebook. Oh, yes. That's Facebook right. from right. gay men. And I went in there and let me tell you something, Chan. This was a party. I logged into fab.com. I uploaded my Facebook profile. I have never gotten so much attention in my life. I was like, I have, this is dynamic. Everybody's saying hello, there's great conversations. It was awesome. And I felt this is going to explode. So I said to him, I'm in for a hundy. He said, okay. He comes back to me. He says, J-Cow, I decided, we ran an experiment on fab.com. We sold some couches, designer couches. They all sold out. We decided... Gay social network, not as good a business as flash sales. I said, okay. Uh, well, I committed to investing in the, the, the Facebook for, for gay guys. I, I think you should do both businesses, but I, there's definitely a need here, right? He's like, I don't know. It's grind or whatever. You know, I, I want to do this other thing. And I was like, all right. He's like, listen, no hard feelings. You could be in or you could be out. No problem. And I said, I think I'm out. Mm-hmm. So I'm out. Fab.com becomes worth a billion dollars. Friend of mine put $500,000 into that round. This was a $5 million round. He bought like 10%. Becomes worth, is 10%, becomes worth $100 million. Mm-hmm. Takes out some, uh, a little bit of loan skis against the secondary set, a couple of loans against his position, starts living large, guy's got a jet suite card, whatever, you know, a little jet card. He's like tooting his own horn. Look at, I made this great investment. Do you know what happened to fab.com? It went close to zero. Zero. Mm-hmm. Raised tons of money, went to zero. Mm-hmm. You know what happens if you take loans against your shares of a company that goes to zero? You have to pay it back. You have to pay it back. This is an instructive lesson for everybody out there. This is what could happen to the WeWork folks. Mm-hmm. What is your thought building this company, having seen guilt, seen... Uh, fab.com and these other and one king's lane all mm-hmm. of them got really mm-hmm. dinged pretty hard uh, and now you're in the commerce business and we see a little bit of shakiness here you see we work in new york maybe it's going to go to zero or mm-hmm. it could go to whatever a billion or it could be a recap is i think probably the most likely thing what do you think about this moment in time and as a founder of a company that just raised 100 million how do you protect and keep everybody seriously focused on what matters yeah well i think having been through that experience of where a company grew from, 
you know, zero to then a billion in valuation mm -hmm. to then go down the other side of the hill again, Oof. I think was the best possible lesson to then in, you know, in a fast growing startup like Zola and to know that we have to earn that every day. And the way you earn it is you work your butt off on behalf of your customers and your partners and, um, nothing is taken for granted. Mm. And so uh, for us, we have from day one, I think, been very frugal and capital efficient. And many times investors will say, wow, this is one of the most capital efficient businesses we've ever seen. And we've done it purposely because we want to avoid mm. um, the situations that we've seen in past companies. But when you take down that $100 million Series D, congratulations. Uh, last year, I guess you did that. Yeah, 18 months ago. 18 months ago got to be a little pressure to grow. And how do you balance the 100 million sitting there? This seems like a business that you could easily get to profitability, right? Because you said you, you're buying wholesale, you're selling retail prices. It could be profitable, I would assume. But people give you the 100 million to grow. How do mm -hmm. you balance the growth expectations of people who can write that $100 million check or 50 or whatever the biggest check is in there? Yeah. I'm not sure who let it with the responsibility you need to have to make this business ultimately profitable, which yeah. is how you will be judged. Is it profitable now or are you in growth phase? We're in growth phase, yeah. but I think with each um, new product and new business line that we launch, we assess it like mm. it's we would assess a new startup idea. So we mm. think, okay, as we, we launched our invitations and paper business, right, when the idea there was – if you love your wedding website with Zola, why can't you print your save the date or your invitation? Yeah, no uh, brainer. Thank you card and and buy that all from Zola. And so that is a new business for us. We launched it a year ago and we invested in that obviously to to get that up and running, to then get the word out about it and grow that business line on top of our existing business. And that, uh, you know, we it is an investment, mm. but we looked at it as, um, you know, is that a ROI positive investment yeah. and and then what are other things like that in the wedding planning journey that we can do that makes sense for the business and then that's where we invest the money. So I don't think it's growth at all costs and right. I I think the to your question of you know what's happening today in the news it's it's a relief. It's a relief to know that companies that grew in a way that does not seem economically sustainable mm -hmm. and now hearing about it. <laughs> I think that you're right. The The market is letting folks know that growth at all costs is not what public market investors want. They want to see a path to profitability and maybe a different growth profile. They're not in the same rush. They don't want you racing to the cliff, Velma and Louise style. They want you racing down the road, sure, but stay on the road. Yeah. Make good investments yeah. in logical places for your particular business. You know, and I, we're having this big internal debate. There are some companies that, like Airbnb, that I believe the rumor is Airbnb is profitable. Somebody can look it up. But I, they seem like that's a hard business to not be profitable, right? Um, we can look it up, Nick, about what people think and put it in the chat room. But my belief is that they're, like, very easily profitable. Then you have Uber and Lyft. Losing 50 cents or so a ride. Pretty easy to cut costs and raise prices and get there, right? You, you cut 25 cents in costs in the business per ride and you add 50 cents to each ride. Now you got a really profitable business. Yeah, they've been uh, Airbnb profitable for the two straight years, they say. Um, and then you have something like WeWork and you're like, wait a second, it's not profitable. And they took on all this risk, and their defensibility is a desk. Your defensibility is everybody who's a guest, you know, at a Zola wedding, puts their email address in and gets a reminder, hey, are you married or not? Would you like to be put your registry up there? Uh, yes, that is one. But also it's the all the products that we're building in the wedding ecosystem. Mm. So all the things that we do yeah. to help couples plan their weddings are all focused on how do we be that one-stop shop when no one else is today. It's pretty smart. It, what happened to the knot? That was like the big 800-pound gorilla. That was like your Amazon. Did they just drop the ball on all this? So they have a, 
a different business model. They, their business is um, media content. Right. Um, they have local listings. They charge the wedding they, vendors, right? Yeah. So they have an, an ad-based model where they yeah. charge ad fees to both um, their yeah. advertisers and, and vendors. And I think that is a fundamentally different business model. I think it's hard to... Yeah, completely different. Um, so now that the world has gotten this cold water thrown on it, you've always been, I think, a little bit logical about growth. What is the outlook for the company over the next couple of years? And Mm -hmm. are, I guess, Goldman did your last round, and that's a bank that takes people public. Are are you thinking, hey, what's the path to going public with this? Or do I just need to get a profitability? As a CEO of a company that's in this Sunicorn phase, what do you think about what to focus on? Because you do have the reality of the market and then the reality of what your investors want. Mm-hmm. They want an exit eventually. You have to deal with this reality of, you know, choppy waters. How do you think about so it? So th- th- just to um, add color to the last round was led, co-led by um, NBC and Comcast Ventures. Oh, wow. And then Goldman Sachs, the investment group, was also participating in that and, and some of our other existing investors. So When you get Comcast and NBC... yeah. Do they put you on TV as part of that? Well, they they give you some ads. They help us understand what's the best way to be spending marketing dollars on NBC uh-huh. as well as you know other. Do they give properties. a little discount or some little remnant going on there. There's certainly benefit to companies in their portfolio. Got it. I got it. Okay. And then, are you up to that? Uh, are you doing television advertising yet, or we what do. works for you? We do. Yeah. yeah so we, uh, you know, what's interesting is we found um, as we've been experimenting with TV ads over the last year that it actually has uh, been very high performing for us from an wow. ROI perspective, which was surprising. Yeah. But I think it's it, it makes sense. I think that some of the products out there today, you're able to um, target more accurately and so it yeah how how do they do that with the targeting is it they target the streaming audience that's one way or the other way is i think we just have a clear sense of what the demographic is per show got it and and so which performs better for you television or social or search and how do you think about it as a CEO when the marketing people come to you? <laughs> well, I can tell you what what they tell me, which is it it's a portfolio approach, uh-huh. and so yeah, it, it sounds like nobody <laughs> wants to take responsibility for their vertical. It, no, it, it and it changes from from quarter to quarter depending uh-huh. on what season we're in. It changes from um, what what products we're promoting. Got so you know, our registry product might be a bit different to our invitations and paper products. So mm-hmm. I think the the goal is how do we make sure when someone is just engaged a few days ago that we are there somewhere, wherever they are, Got whether it. it's um, on the social channels or TV or search. Uh-huh. So search has got to be super competitive. Wedding invitations, my God. Or wedding registry. What does that cost per click? $20? $30? Because you have PTSD from this. <laughs> well, I could tell you. I'd have to she kill you. She just rolled her eyes and was like shaking her head like, <laughs> I just say oh my God. The, um, Search ads. <laughs> um, wedding registry. That's got to be a $20 click. <laughs> the, the team would kill me if I were to disclose any of our secrets. Yeah, no, you don't have to do that. But it's got to be brutal. You know, it's got to be totally brutal. Um, What do you think of this? Um, You like if I type Zola, Mm -hmm. you have the first ad Zola, Mm -hmm. and then you have your listing, your organic. Mm -hmm. And it's it's like a little tiny ad. Here it is. Look at the little tiny ad. Isn't this like just so lame that uh, Google does this to you guys? Look, this is wedding registry. Oh, yeah. Do Zola. Just do Zola. This is infuriating to me. Now, they didn't put your competitor ahead of you, but they put your ad ahead of you. So don't click that. It's going to cost you like 20 bucks. <laughs> Isn't this infuriating that they make you buy your ad slot above your organic result? And then if you type, it's crazy, right? At least they didn't put competitors up there. Did you see that? That they're putting, you have to buy your, you have mm-hmm. to buy it because mm-hmm. they put their competitors in there. I mean, I have seen some people in the, in the, can tech community be up in arms about so, this? Right on, the whole big thing. Um, Type in uh, Asana. This is like infuriating for Asana. So like Asana has to deal with Monday. And then if you type in Monday, uh, oh, it actually do um, 
do Basecamp. I think this Basecamp was the guy who was complaining about this because Basecamp didn't want to pay. Mm. Oh, look, they took it off. Yeah, Yeah, because he was complaining so much. Scroll down. Type in Basecamp Project Management. Let's see if for that, because Basecamp is kind of a generic term, but uh, let's see if if they change that one. Yeah, look, and so Monday has the ad for ba- above Basecamp because it has the word project management in it. Mm. But this is a really controversial issue, I think, that this is what's going to get Google into antitrust trouble is this overreaching thing where you type in one mm-hmm. person and they put the competitor up there. Mm-hmm. Like if you type – just do Netflix and let's see if Disney Plus comes up. <laughs> that would be nasty. No ads. Okay. Uh. Anyway, uh, what do you think of that thing, the, 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 the brand search thing? I mean, I, do I love it? Would I prefer not to pay for it? Yes. Do I think it's part of the cost of doing business today? Yeah. Unfortunately. You got to do it, yeah. So this is where Google, I think tech companies need to behave just a little bit better. Just like 5% better <laughs> would go a long way. Like this feels too sharp-elbowed, Google. I'm just looking at Google, Sundar. <laughs> like, you don't. this is probably winds up being 2% of their revenue, or maybe like, under 1% doing this like little trick of like making you buy your name. It just feels lame. Like Mm -hmm. don't do these things on the margin. You know what it's like? It's like the DoorDash tipping thing. You know about that? Yes. What do you think of that one? I think a tip should go to the the person who did the delivery. (laughs) I mean, what are you thinking, DoorDash? I know the team over there. Like this is the stupidest optics you could ever do. This is where tech needs to just... On the edges, just if your mom or dad found out you were doing it, what would they say over dinner? Right. If right. somebody went to your mom and dad and were like, you give the tip to everybody, like to the CEO of DoorDash, like, your mom got the tip, right? The mom says, yeah, the driver got the tip, right? I just ordered from DoorDash. And you're like, maybe. And your mom's like, what? But I, I used your service. I gave a $4 tip. Like, well, if you give five, we give it to them. If it's under five, it pays for their fee. It's just so lame. Well, yeah, and just do you think about on, this stuff? Uh, you know, to go tech? off that. Well, I, absolutely, and I think the um, thing that has been disheartening to watch over more recent years as the tech bubble has expanded is just some bad behaviors that um, that I think uh, are frustrating. That companies can even be let. You know, it's like in investors or the board or the companies or the leaders are letting this happen. Yeah, yeah. And and I think it's you know people like some of the things you talk about on your podcast yeah. or um, in the the news where it's only by calling people out saying this doesn't feel okay that things start to change. But I I wish that there was um, some internal. Yeah, being held to your own high standard. You have an internal compass that you were raised to think, you know, just because I could let people place ads on Facebook by nationality. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like, oh, that's a clever idea. But wait, people could use that for nefarious purposes. Maybe we shouldn't let them target African-Americans in swing states. Yeah. And then take rubles for those ads. Like, I mean, come on. And it's so dark. Yeah, and I don't want to act like you know we are perfect and I am perfect. And definitely not the case. Here. But I think you know one of the things that um, that I one of the books I read recently, Super Pumped, was yeah um, I haven't read it. So I'm not in it. I looked at the index because I'm an Uber <laughs> investor, and I, the second I don't know my guys like thinks I, I mean I had no role in the success of Uber. Obviously, I'm being dead serious. Like I just put a check in, but. Yeah, there were some things on the, there that were bad behavior that you didn't. Uh, well, I think that one of the the highlights of that book to me was a letter that was covered in that book that Katrina Lake wrote um, uh, to to Benchmark. That's oh, Bill Gurley specifically. That was like, look, this I'm reading a lot about this behavior. This is not what I expect. I yeah. just want you to know. And that letter that she wrote, I thought was a great example of just leadership. Great leadership. 
Hey, everybody. I'm here with my friend Jason Maynard, who works at NetSuite. Tell everybody, what do you do, Jason? You know, I do I do many things here at NetSuite, but I run the field operations for the business unit. I know you had my friend Jamie Siminoff and, uh, from Ring use NetSuite. He, yep. he really scaled that company quickly. What are some success stories in terms of people scaling quickly and how you help them at NetSuite? So the thing about Jamie, and I admire most about him, is he, he even taught me um, three things. Mission strategy and execution. So Ring was a mission-driven company, right? Make community safe. Make community safe. Everyone in the company lined up behind that. Then he had a clear strategy in terms of how they were going to go to market, acquire customers, and and the product strategy was completely aligned. And they were really good at execution. I mean, they really went after kind of an omni-channel type model. They were online. They were selling through stores. They were on QVC. You know, they did all Any of that. way to get people yeah. to support the mission. But they were all lined up. Mm-hmm. That organization was completely lined up. And one of the things Jamie does, and I'm sure he probably talked about this at times, he still would onboard all the employees to make sure that they heard the mission. Mm-hmm. So for a founder like that, he wasn't in the, the depth of the accounting department counting the beans. He was making sure that everybody they hired was on the same page. And I think that is what you have to do to lead. All right. Right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide the seven key strategies to grow your profits. So go to netsuite.com slash twist, netsuite.com slash twist, and get that free guide. Seven key strategies to grow your profits. We appreciate the work you're doing in the startup community. It's great Thanks, stuff. Thanks, pal. Thanks. All right, we'll be back with more. You deal with that harassment? Have you ever had to deal with that in your career? I'm curious. You've been doing this uh, in tech since 2007, I think. Um, How much harassment have you had to deal with? <laughs> as, a, as a woman, and as an Asian woman, I'm married to an Asian woman, the amount of harassment I see her get, specifically as an Asian woman, like people, I think, maybe discount that, but it really is like you get treated a certain way. Yeah. I think the thing that- And um, maybe a white woman wouldn't. Well, uh, it's hard to say. I don't, I have not experienced being a white woman, but- Neither have I. But I I think the, um, certainly being underestimated has happened as a founder and, and while frustrating, I think we're starting to see some positive shifts in the industry. How did that manifest itself? The under the uh, uh, underestimating you specifically. Well, you know, sometimes uh, people investors would say, you know, I want to ask my wife about <laughs> whether this is a good idea, or you know, we didn't. Um, you know, we seem to have a fine experience with our wedding registry. 20 years ago, so I'm not sure this needs changing. So I think those are just things that you wouldn't say to anyone coming up with a a cool new product in something that you were excited about personally. Yeah, I I think it's so clueless when male investors don't take the time – to understand something that maybe has a female buyer. It's like, it's a crazy blind spot. I was in a meeting once and this one investor shows up like 20 minutes late to every board meeting and he's like, yeah, you know, I talked to my wife about the website and he literally goes into this whole thing about his wife's website and I just thought to myself, you're worth 50 effing million dollars. You have four homes and your life is not the prototypical yes. life here. Yes. Yes. Like so the the level of cluelessness, number one, it's so insulting to the founder to be like, let me tell you what one person <laughs> who is worth fifty million dollars with four homes thinks about your website, which their assistant might use or their house manager might use, but they would never actually go to. It's a, like a level of cluelessness. Get educated. And I think that's why it's 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 um it's why I th- you know, what we're doing in the wedding space mm. is particularly gratifying now to be able to show an example of something that uh, people didn't expect could be a big category. Mm. But you know, the reality is the weddings market in the U.S. alone is a $100 billion market, Crazy. right? Which is bigger than many of the other categories that investors invest in every day. Which, by the way, 2 million weddings, yep. 50,000 a wedding. That's how you get there, right? It's pretty simple math. It's it's mind-boggling how this is one of the few categories left that is fueled by millennial spending today that has not yet seen a multi-billion dollar disruptor emerge. No. Yet every other category that you look at of this size has seen that disruptor come through and take yeah. the entire market. And so um, 
I think can being that mis you know misunderestimated or people ignoring this category is very motivating and frustrating and exciting all at the same time. Let me ask this. Yeah. You've been at it for 10 years. No, six. Well, Zola. six for this Zola. Yes. But you had the four years before. Yes, yes. Do you feel it's changed in tech over the past decade and, and how uh, as a woman in tech in that you're in the captain seat? You yeah. Know, you're the captain of your ship. Well, I think the um, – you know, certainly the New York tech scene has changed tremendously, even over the last six years. Huh. Uh, so when I first, I moved actually from the Bay Area to New York to take oh, the job. Sunnyvale to New York? <laughs> take the job as the first private Yahoo person. Yahoo was in Sunnyvale, yeah. right, at that era? It was, but I lived Ooh. in San Francisco. And you commuted down there? Yes. Oh, my Lord, how brutal. <laughs> it was brutal. Ugh. But down to great experience, amazing Sunnyvale, <laughs> lots of great restaurant choices down there. Oh, it's so brutal. It was for the people, not the not the location. David Philo is showing up in his like Honda Accord. Well, eating you in know, the cafeteria. The the fun story behind Yahoo is that I had a poster of Jerry Yang on my bedroom wall from when I was from when Yahoo first started because I loved the company so much and I admired wow. Jerry Yang so much. So and you so, were an entrepreneur nerd kid. Yes. Yes. True nerd. True nerd. Yes. You didn't have Nirvana. No Bieber. <laughs> Jerry Yang. Correct. David Philo. I like it. And so that was the reason I wanted to come to Silicon Valley, work at Yahoo. I even one day got to pass Jerry in the corridor. It's very exciting. Did he give you a high five or say hi? Did you no, I was too intimidated at that point. Really? But the best, one of the best moments um, in recent history was I got to meet Jerry Yang again in person, have an actual conversation, and he oh. now in, is an investor in Zola. Wow. Yeah. I mean, he's Taiwanese, I think, right? Yeah, by heritage. I yeah, by so. heritage. Yeah. And he's a hero in Taiwan. I mean, Yahoo in Taiwan was the number one search engine for a long time because... Jerry Yang was just so worshipped there or whatever. He's a really great founder. Now he's an investor. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Well, that's, that's a full circle for you. Yes, exactly. Uh, well, listen, continued success. Thanks for sharing uh, this great success. If you're getting married, you know what to do. Go to Zola.com. Oh, by the way, did you take a vig on uh, if I buy Sam like dinner when she's in uh, Paris – and she gets a gift card. Take a vig on that, or is well. So that I think is the the through the honeymoon final cash fund. We make ah. no money. That's ah. yeah. So because I remember I got pitched by Honey Fund or something like that. That's like right. just Kickstarter for weddings. That's not you guys. So the way um, they charge. I, yes, I believe they make money through charging an additional amount. Mm. We do not. We we get charged a credit card processing fee when you use Whatever, your credit yeah. card, yeah. and we break even on that. And so we make no cash so on that's the cash smart. fund. Yes. Thank you. That's super smart. You give up. It's like a, it's a really smart move. You, because you're giving that for free, it makes it super easy then to add your other items. Because you're like, you know what? I I could just give people my Venmo and get it direct. Young people are pretty savvy about moving money around. So if you were to charge ten percent, they would tell you, you know, don't use it. Yeah. Now you got the money flowing through. Well, so I, yeah. I, I mean, I think it comes back to what is the right thing to do for the user? Mm. What is the thing that we can build that is going to have everyone want to actually create a, a yeah. registry or their invitations or their wedding on Zola? And, and we make the right decision. All right. Listen, continued success. If you haven't used Zola and you're getting married, what are you waiting for? Get there. <laughs> Zola.com. And uh, you're hiring. Yes. What are you hiring? What's the, what's the hardest position in New York? Still developers or it's kind of hard in New York developers or it's gotten better? Oh, it's gotten much better. Yeah. Uh, but always everyone, every team um, within our company is hiring engineers, uh, product designers, product what's managers. The what's the culture? Hard work or balance and lifestyle? What's the, what's the culture, would you say, on that spectrum? Um, hard work, get a big reward or culture and balance? Where do you put it? You I seem would like a hard worker to me. <laughs> yeah, I would say we 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 want people who work hard and are entrepreneurial, but mm. at the same time, we don't want people to kill themselves because Got we it. want them to be able to work with us for a long time. Got it. So you believe in the uh, like putting in a solid fifty hours a week, but not an insane eighty. <laughs> Focus forty. I think it's whatever you gets the plan done. It's a big discussion here in Silicon Valley. I think part of this like entitlement is part of what got us here is like it used to be in the tech industry you were expected to like 
the idea that you had balance in a startup was like, well, ba- you're not. If you want balance, go to the big company. Like, if you're at a startup, you, we're here to like hustle. We we win because we work whatever twenty percent harder. And then there became this thing like startups were going to have balance, and everybody would be namaste and putting in forty hours a week. That doesn't seem to me like a recipe for winning. I don't know. Maybe I'm old school. I think I am old school. I know I'm old school. I mean, I so I think the reality is if you can work productively up to a certain point, yeah. that is the point at which you should. Yeah. What do you stop. put in, honestly? Sixty hours a week? What would you say your average like hours into your as a CEO? Sixty. I would say each day I'm in the office up until maybe seven. So you put in 10 hours. Go home and then a few hours. So you're home. putting in 10, 12 hours a day, yeah. five, six days a week. You're doing a solid 60, 70 as a CEO. That's what it takes. That's what it takes as a CEO. I don't expect my entire team no. to be doing that every no. day, every week. That's yeah. absolutely not. That's absolutely not. But you put in the 60, 70. Yeah. yeah. Let me just a message to millennials. <laughs> she doesn't expect you to. But let me tell you something. I would never go to work and come in after my boss arrived, and I would never leave before my boss left the office. To me, were you? did you grow up that way? Like, don't leave till the boss leaves? Uh, I don't think that was ever explicitly said, but uh, I, I, I probably did not do that. <laughs> to me, like, yeah, put in the time, people. I think it's an Olympic sport startups. I think this is an Olympic sport to get uh, to be an Olympian, which you are. You want to go for the gold. You got to get up early. You may be a little tired at the end of the day. Well, that's what I tell everyone who says, you know, how do I know if I should be a founder and start a company? And I say, well, are you willing to devote at least the next seven to 10 years of your life at a minimum 24 seven, nothing else but this? Because if you are, yeah, yeah, you should be a founder. But if not, maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah. So, yeah, if you want to be in the captain's seat, like it's a lot of responsibility. It's a lot of work. All right, listen, continued success. And uh, we'll see you. Uh, is the Z, uh, stock ticker symbol Zola. Yes. <laughs> right, here we go. Good luck. <laughs> all right. Thank I'll you. See you all next time.